The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Today's sermon's text will be from Philippians 3, verse 1 to 11. Philippians 3, verse 1 to 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else think he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as, for, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Well, good morning. It's good to be together as we look at God's word. Would you join me as we pray? Father, open our eyes to see more of you, more of Christ. Help us to love you more as a result of hearing your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're in Philippians chapter 3, and what I want to do is illustrate where this passage is going by talking about a different passage in the Bible. So if you're familiar with Mark chapter 10, you don't have to turn there. It records a conversation between Jesus and a young man who comes to Jesus. He's often called the rich young man. And this young man comes running up to Jesus and he says, good teacher. And he actually falls down on his knees showing the type of reverence and respect that he has for Jesus. And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life. And how does Jesus respond? For those of you that have read your Bible, you know that Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. And he starts listing some of the Ten Commandments. He says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And to our amazement, and probably to the amazement of many around, that the man says, well, all of these I've done from my youth, Jesus. He says, I've checked all those boxes. And then Jesus 
looks at him. And Mark records for us in Mark 10, he says that Jesus looked at him and he was filled with love and compassion for this young man. And he says to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And it's at this point, Mark tells us that this man's demeanor dropped. He was disheartened. He was disappointed and he left with sorrow. And it tells us the reason it says, because he had great possessions. This was a rich young man who had a lot of things and Jesus knew exactly who it was that was coming to him. And Jesus says, the one thing you've put above me in following me is the one thing you need to let go of. This man's assets suddenly became his greatest liabilities. His riches prevented him from following Jesus. He couldn't let go of earthly wealth. He could have said, okay, I'll sell all of it. I'm following you, Jesus. But he doesn't. He says, the cost is too great. His assets, what he thought were his assets, the things that he found confidence in, the things that he had accumulated, the things that he had perhaps inherited, the things that he trusted in, suddenly became his greatest liability. It stood in between him and eternal life. And that's exactly what our passage in Philippians has in view this morning. Previously in chapter two, Paul commends Timothy and Epaphroditus as good examples who pursue Christ, as Pastor Sam drew out for us last week. And now he transitions to talk a lot about himself, talk about his own life and his own example. He uses the personal pronoun I at least 10 times in our passage. And what verse one does is it serves as a bridge from last week to this week. So look with me at verse one. He he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Why is he saying rejoice? I think it's because he's sending Epaphroditus who risked his life in order to bring their gift to him. And he says, I'm sending him back to you. And you were anxious for him. You thought he was going to die, but now you're going to see him, receive him with joy. And so he's saying, rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. What's that mean? Well, I think he's repeating teaching that he's already given either in person or via messenger, or in earlier writing. And where it says safe, it's safe for you, it also means stable, or firm, or secure, or certain. And and so what Paul is doing here is he's writing in order that they might stand firm, which he's already drawn out earlier in chapter 1, verse 27. He says, stand firm in one spirit, and he's going to mention it again in chapter 4, verse 1, stand firm thus in the Lord. And so what Paul's going to write is not to talk about himself, it's not to draw attention to himself, but he's saying, I'm writing these things, I'm talking about myself in order that you might stand firm in Christ. Paul is not trying to bring himself into the forefront, but he wants to draw Christ to the forefront. Now, what Paul does then is he shifts to a warning in verse 2. And what he does for us is he kind of pulls back the curtain and he shows us his spiritual ledger. 
or spiritual balance sheet. Like a company that lists all of their assets in one column and then all of their liabilities, you know, debt and expenses and taxes. And then you have all your assets like buildings and machines and product. And, and, and you say, you know, what, what's kind of the final bottom line, right? When, when you take those two columns and, and what Paul is doing is he's showing us his spiritual balance sheet. Because in a few verses later, in chapter 3, verse 17, he's going to say, imitate me. And imitate those who walk according to the example you have in us. So what is it that we're to imitate? Well, Paul's showing us now here in this passage. And the main question that Paul answers for us this morning in this passage is what should be in the asset column and what should be in the liabilities column? What really matters at the end of the day in our lives? And you're wondering, why should I care? Well, because we could be like that young man who store up assets, thinking that that is going to get us where we want to go. And at the end of our life, we find out, oh, those were liabilities. And we're devastated. It's a, it's a deadly, it's a costly mistake. So we're going to look at our passage in two parts this morning. And, and the first part is the ridiculousness of trusting in the flesh in verses 2 to 7. The ridiculousness of trusting in the flesh. And so verse 2 begins with a warning. Look at verse 2 with me. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So who is Paul referring to? I think all three of those things are referring to the same set of people, and it's Jewish Christians probably visiting teachers that traveled from church to church who sought to persuade Gentile Christians to get circumcised. And we'll see that in just a moment because he refers to circumcision. Now, when Paul calls them dogs, he's not thinking of that cuddly golden retriever, but he's thinking of dirty, kind of gross animals that will go eat a corpse or their own vomit. That's what he's calling to mind. It's like how we would think about urban sewer rats. That's what he's calling them. And in an ironic twist, Paul calls these people dogs, even though Gentiles would have been considered dogs by Jews because they were unclean. And so these Jewish teachers were teaching that circumcision, the Old Testament sign of being part of the covenant people of God, is required in order to be fully saved. And so they're going around teaching Gentile Christians, you know, it's great that you've accepted Jesus. Now all you have to do is get circumcised, begin to follow the Old Testament law, all the food laws, eat kosher, and then you're part of God's covenant people. And there's a bit of irony here. There's a wordplay here in the Greek where he talks about mutilators. The, the Greek word for that is katatome, and circumcision is peritome. So they're the same root words, but the word for mutilators is to say to cut off, as opposed to circumcision is to cut around. And for the kids among us, you can ask your parents about what that means. But you can get at what Paul is saying. We're viewing these things very differently. You guys want to mutilate. And then he says, no, no, no. We don't need to pursue circumcision. He taught in Romans, Paul taught in Romans 2.29, that a true Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. 
And so Paul is warning against trusting in any ceremonial or physical signs for salvation. Signs point to the inward spiritual reality. It's foolish to trust in any physical signs for confidence and for salvation. Thinking about this type of misguided trust in ceremony reminds me of a story. Some of you might remember this. In 2017, there was a newborn baby that was left in a laundry basket at the Cathedral of St. Paul, here in St. Paul. And the priest found the baby with, I think, another worker at the church. And so they called the police. And then before the police arrived and as they were waiting, do you know what they did? They baptized the baby. This is blind adherence to ceremony. Baptism is meaningless without the inward spiritual reality. In great irony, that baby was placed in a good family where the dad is a Baptist pastor actually here in the Twin Cities. So when that child is of age, Lord willing, when he's following Jesus, he'll receive believer's baptism when he professes Christ. But there's this blind adherence to ceremony, thinking that ceremony, tradition, physical outward signs is is all that's really important in that moment. Now, look with me at verse 3 for the reason Paul gives why we don't trust in circumcision. He says, for we are the circumcision." who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is teaching that Gentile believers ought to reject this requirement for circumcision because they already are the true circumcision, meaning they already are the true people of God because they are in Christ. And he gives them three reasons for that. Because you already, Gentile Christians, worship by the Spirit of God. And you glory in Christ Jesus, and you put no confidence in the flesh. What what do each of those three things mean? Well, the first, he's saying that you worship by the Spirit of God. He's now articulating that the Holy Spirit, indwelling God's people, is now the distinguishing mark of God's chosen people. It's no longer circumcision like in the Old Testament that delineated who were God's people. And even then, it was really about what had taken place in the heart. Now he's saying it's reflected as a greater reality. Those who have the Spirit, those who worship by the Spirit of God, are those who are in Christ. This Spirit teaches and guides and empowers our obedience. The second characteristic he draws out is that they glory in Christ Jesus or they boast in Christ Jesus. Their confidence is in Christ. Their confidence isn't in what they've done or or what their parents did for them, but they boast or they glory in Christ. He drew this out earlier in chapter 126, that we glory in Christ Jesus And so it's like if someone says to you, are you a Christian? You know, you're on vacation, you're at the grocery store, they notice something you say, and they say, are you a Christian? What what do you say in that moment? Do you say, oh yeah, I I was baptized in 1996 by pastor so-and-so at the church of whatever, right? Do you say that? Do Do you mainly point back to that? No. We say, Jesus is my Lord my savior, my treasure. He's my only hope in life and in death. 
We, we don't point backwards to a moment, a sign and a symbol. We point to the current reality that Christ is all. And that's what he's saying. We, we boast in Christ right now. You don't need the sign, Gentiles. And the third thing he says is that they put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, God's people don't trust or put any confidence in any physical reality. No national identity, no physical characteristics, no religious ceremony. And it's this third reason that kind of launches Paul off in verses 4 to 6 to expound on why it's so absurd or ridiculous to trust in the flesh. And it's here he moves from the first person plural, we, to the first person singular, and he talks about himself. So look with me at verses 4 to 6. I'm going to read it for us again. Paul says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul is saying, if you want to compare resumes to see who ought to boast in the flesh, I'm going to win. I have more to boast in. But that's not what we ultimately want to do. And so he gives these seven reasons to show how absurd it is. And so he talks about circumcised on the eighth day, which means his Jewish family, his Jewish parents, fulfilled the requirement of the law of God that was commanded in Genesis 17:12, which means he had good Jewish parents. And then he was of the people of Israel. So he had a pure pedigree, untainted by Gentile blood. He's of the tribe of Benjamin, which means he has noble ancestry. This is a favored tribe in Israel. And the very first king of Israel came from the tribe of Benjamin. And his name was Saul, where Saul Paul got his name. It's his Hebrew name. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. This means Paul is fluent in speaking Hebrew. He's still connected to his cultural heritage. As to the law, a Pharisee. So Paul was a member of the influential religious leaders of their day who were known for being morally superior in their strict adherence to the law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Paul was so zealous for the purity of the church that he even oversaw the stoning of Stephen in Acts 8.1. So Paul's listing out his resume. The first four things are things that he inherits from his parents. The last three are things that he himself has attained. Well, the last one, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This means Paul so carefully obeyed Old Testament law so that he followed the letter of the law in every instance so that his external adherence to the law was impeccable. And Paul puts up that resume in order to say, but whatever gain I had, look with me at verse 7, whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. What he's saying is as one who has the right heritage, the right pedigree, the right resume, the right accomplishments, it's nothing in comparison to the sake of Christ. His social and religious capital is loss. It's nothing in comparison to knowing Jesus. And so what he's saying here is that Jesus is really, really important. 
Knowing Jesus is really significant for Paul. His whole letter has been about that. I suffer for Jesus. Uh, I'm with Jesus. I'm found in him. Everything I do is all about Jesus and not about myself. And now he's making it crystal clear for these Gentile believers who are getting pressure. He says, you don't have to give in to any of those pressures because if you have Jesus, you have everything that you need. He adds up all the stuff that he formerly put in his assets column. The things he took pride in, the things he pointed to, to say, look, I'm an important person. And he says, it's loss. It's one huge liability in light of Christ. This morning, we might be tempted to think that good thing we're not like all those Jewish Christians in Paul's day. We're much more mature than them. We don't trust in our ethnic heritage. And yet, are there other things that we've put wrongly into the assets column of our lives? I remember as a kid, when I was growing up, and my dad was a pastor for a season during my growing up years, and I just always thought, yep, that's the biggest evidence of why God would accept me. Because because dad has a direct line or something, you know, red telephone or something. And, and, and I was so wrong, so deceived. And so here's some diagnostic questions for us. Do we believe our education makes us spiritually superior to others? Does our family heritage give us a subtle sense of confidence over others? Do we view our ethnic identity or cultural identity as being superior to others? Do we think our morality and ethical behavior cause God to love us more? Do we believe our service at church or generosity in giving or impressive Bible reading track record merit God's favor? Do we believe our financial prosperity makes us more important in God's eyes? Do we take pride in what we've accomplished, the respect we've garnered, the accolades we've received, the skills we've obtained, our morality, and somehow slowly and subtly begin to take confidence in the flesh. The converse of this is true as well. We might be tempted to pursue these things because we don't have them right now, thinking that if we then attain to them, then God will then really receive us. Well, I'm not like all you pastors who have your MDiv degrees, and so maybe I'll go get one of those so that God would then accept me a little bit more. And that would be wrong. In Christ, we have everything we need for life and godliness. Jesus is enough. That's all we need. Everything else in comparison is loss. And the thing I want to draw out for us in this first point is that we ought not to make good things bad things by placing our trust in them. Let me say that again. Don't make good things bad things by placing your trust in them. So it's great if God has given us a good education or we have a good family heritage and we're, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth generation believers. It's good that we're living ethical lives, Lord willing, or serving at church or giving generously or being hospitable or reading our Bibles. Praise God if he has blessed you financially or if you have cultivated skills and gifts that are useful. 
But don't make good things bad things by placing your trust in them. Paul is calling us to prioritize everything rightly. Make sure you know what's in the assets and liabilities column. And Paul says he puts no confidence, no trust in those things in order to be right with God. I count them as loss for the sake of Christ. So our first point is that it's ridiculous to trust in the flesh. And then he transitions us to the second half where we have the riches of knowing Christ. Second half, 8 to 11, is the riches of knowing Christ. Look with me at verse 8. He reiterates what he just said in verse 7. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul is saying Jesus is incomparably greater than anything else. And it's probably at this point, Paul probably has in view. He's kind of flashing back to his conversion experience. He's on the road to Damascus and, and this blinding light comes and he hears this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and he realizes he's speaking with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, meets him on the road to Damascus. What lavish grace is shown to Paul in that moment. And, and he's saying, everything else I took confidence in pales in comparison to having Jesus, to that experience of knowing Christ and every experience of experiencing Christ after that. Consider just how mind-blowing this would have been for a a good Jew who knew his Bible, knew his Old Testament, uh, knowing that the, the priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year and you offer sacrifices and, and it was a lot of ceremony, a lot of tradition, a lot of kind of following the rules and then all of a sudden he's told, you can have a real, intimate, personal relationship with this God. Do, do you see what he says there in verse eight? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, not the Lord, my Lord, that the God of the universe... Jesus, the one in whom every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. This one knows me and I know him and I've been brought into relationship with this God. Jesus Christ, my Lord. And he says it's surpassing worth. This experience far exceeds everything else. Paul says it's not just knowing Christ is shallow acknowledgement, but it's submission to Christ. He's my Lord. I submit myself to him. Now, what I want to do in this second half is just ask four questions of our text. And if I read them all now, you won't remember them. So let's just walk through them one by one. What does it mean for Paul to have suffered the loss of all things? Do you see that? I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. So Paul's encounter with Jesus did, in fact, result in him either losing or renouncing a lot of the privileges and advantages that he enjoyed. All of his religious 
kind of social standing and religious achievements. He was beaten. He was imprisoned for his newfound faith. He lost all the respect that he had as a Pharisee. He suffered real loss. But when he puts that in on the other side of the scale with Christ on this side, he says, still worth it. Still worth it. Jesus is better. Now, second question, what does it mean for Paul to count them as rubbish? You see that in verse 9. Verse 8, actually. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Well, Paul calls all of his privileges and advantages, the things he listed out in verses 5 and 6, as scubala. This is a crude connotation to this word, kind of like useless or refuse or garbage or manure. The things that brought him acclaim, recognition, and privilege are like trash because they did not help him know Christ. Someone earlier in the prayer room said, it's like the gunk that you pull out of the sink when it gets all clogged up and you put a little hook down there. All that stuff you're pulling up, that's what Paul is calling all of those things he formerly took confidence in. It's junk if it keeps me from apprehending Christ. Jesus is not just a little bit better than what the world offers. Jesus makes everything that the world offers pale in comparison to what he offers, who he is. He makes all the riches of the world look like the gunk that you pull out of the sink. That's what Paul is saying here this morning. Third question, what is the righteousness that comes from faith in Christ and not from the law? See that in verse 9, he says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Well, Paul is contrasting two different types of righteousness. You can either have a righteousness that comes from the law that is of our own doing, or we can have a righteousness from God that comes through faith. So you can either have a self-made righteousness or a righteousness that depends on God. And Paul is saying, I do not have a self-made righteousness. Why I might have previously thought that I was blameless when it came to upholding the law. I realize now that that is utterly insufficient in order to be justified before a perfectly holy God. And so what he's talking about here is the imputed righteousness of Christ. This means that God counts, imputes the righteousness that Jesus obtained through his perfect life, his perfect obedience to God the Father. He, he, the way he looks upon Jesus, he now looks upon every believer because it's been counted or credited or imputed to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he, who made, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. And so Jesus' sinless life and his faithful obedience becomes ours. Because Titus 3.5 says, Jesus saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Just like the song we sung, oh, we are desperately in need of mercy. When we come before God, we cry out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner 
in need of a savior. We, we don't come like the Pharisee, I think in Luke 18, where he says, I thank God, he's thanking God that I'm not like all these other people, but rather like the tax collector who says, oh God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Fourth question, what does it mean to by any means possible attain resurrection from the dead? If you look at verse 10 and 11, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So there we have resurrection as bookends of verse 10 and 11. In between, he talks about sufferings and death. So what is Paul talking about here? Well, the first mention of resurrection is he wants to have the power of his resurrection. He wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. So what's the power of Christ's resurrection? Well, the spirit of God is what raised Jesus from the dead. And that same spirit is now at work in us, upholding us and enabling us to love and follow Jesus. And so he says, I want to experience more of God through his spirit. And I even want to participate in his sufferings and death. And so what he's talking about here is he's been brought into union with Christ and he participates with Christ. Paul not only says, give me Jesus, which is better than everything else. And as long as I can just get that ticket to heaven, I'll be good. And and that is the unfortunate reality for so much of our world. Just give me the good stuff and then I'll be good. Just give me the fire insurance and then I can put that behind and do whatever I want. And Paul says, that's not how it works. When you know Christ, you know him and the power of his resurrection so that you have the spirit at work in us so that we participate with Christ in suffering, enduring all the normal trials and sufferings that come in following Jesus and even dying to ourselves so that ultimately we become more like Christ. Romans 8.11 tells us that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, dwells in us now. And Paul earlier in chapter 1 verse 29 says, It's been granted to you, Philippians, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. It's been given to you as a gift so that you might experience more of the resurrection power of Jesus within us. And so maybe just as a brief aside, for in 2023, we, we don't know what it's going to look like, but for some of us, it will be the greatest year of suffering. And if that's the case, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake so that you would experience more of his intimate, close, personal comfort and peace by the power of the spirit he has not left us alone verse 11 when the second mention of resurrection that by any means possible may attain the resurrection from the dead is pointing forward to final resurrection paul wants to know christ so that he will eventually receive a glorified body like jesus he talks about this just a few verses later Philippians 3, 20 and 21, just scan down to verse 20 and 21, where he says, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Paul's confidence is that it's ridiculous to trust in the flesh because the flesh can't ultimately raise itself. And the riches we have in trusting Christ are because we will receive glorified, renewed bodies in him. Jesus is ours. And so, brothers and sisters, let's make this year all about treasuring Christ in all of life. So the summary of our passage, the main point, if you will, is that trusting in anything other than Jesus is folly because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. When you weigh it all out, you throw it all on the scale, Jesus far outweighs anything that this world can offer. It's folly, it's ridiculous, it's ludicrous to trust in anything because of their surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And so if you were to rewrite Philippians 3, 1 to 11 from your perspective this morning, what would you put in verses 4, 5, and 6? What would you list out as the things you're most proud of, the things you take pride in, the things you're most confident in? I'm most thankful for. And then could you write verse 8? I counted all this loss for the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus, my Lord. The, the whole aim of this sermon is that we would be able to just a little bit more when we walk out of here this morning. That if we lost it all like Job, we'd say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If I have Jesus and everything else goes to waste or dies or falls apart, I have everything that I need. He has not left us alone. There is no value in self-made righteousness. Can we say all of that is rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ? For those this morning who aren't yet believers and you're wondering about Christianity, we're so glad you're here. We, we know that you're here every week and we're, we're glad you've joined us. And Paul in this passage is basically telling us there are two ways to live. You can either have a self-made righteousness and on the final day, there will be a judgment day. The Bible tells us about that and you will stand before Jesus and you'll say, look at my list of accomplishments. This is why I should get in. Self-made righteousness. Uh, I, I, I didn't steal a whole lot. I didn't lie. M maybe I was mostly ethical at work. Uh, I tried not to get too impatient with my family. And, and it'll be all listed out, the good, bad, and the ugly. And you'll say, that's it. And, and the other way is that there will be this list of all that we've said and done. And then at the top, it will say paid for. Imputed righteousness. All that Jesus has accomplished covers over all that we have done and what we receive is Jesus' right standing before the Father. And those are the only two ways to live when it comes to Judgment Day. And so we would exhort you, we would encourage you to consider, to look into what the Bible says about these two ways to live. We cannot earn our way into a right relationship with God. 
Paul is exhibit A. He would say, if anyone was zealous, if anyone was trying, it was me. And when it came down to it, I realized all of it is junk. We cannot earn our way into a right standing with God. And so instead, the good news of the gospel is that you can receive it for free by believing in Jesus, receiving his work on our behalf and saying, Lord, I trust you. Like that rich young man who comes before Jesus, what must I do? And he says, see everything else as loss in comparison to following me. You can this morning say, I want Jesus. Let me close with this quote from theologian D.A. Carson on this text. He says, Most who read these pages, I suspect, will not be greatly tempted to boast about their Jewish ancestry and ancient rites of race and religious heritage. But we may be tempted to brag about still less important things, our wealth, our status, our education, our emotional stability, our families, our political or business successes, our denominational alignments, or even about which version of the Bible we use. Be careful of people like that. They tend to regard everyone who is outside their little group as somehow inferior. Somewhere along the way, they inadvertently or even intentionally and maliciously imagine that faith in Christ Jesus and delight in him is a little less important than their personal accomplishments. Instead, look around for those whose constant confidence is Jesus Christ whose constant boast is Jesus Christ, whose constant delight is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center of their worship, the center of their gratitude, the center of their love, the center of their hope. Emulate those whose constant confidence and boast is in Christ Jesus and in nothing else. And so, brothers and sisters, May that be true of us this morning. May it be increasingly true of us this morning that our only hope, our only boast, our only confidence is in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Make that true of us this morning. For those who don't know you, that it would be true for the first time, that there would be a surrendering, a believing, a trusting, a cleaving, a counting of loss of the things we take confidence in. And for all of us, Lord, we pray that we would increasingly take no confidence in the flesh, but take all our hope, place all of our hope in Christ, in Christ alone. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415.
Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading the passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.